Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Whoever loves the Father also loves the child who is born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is loving God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not grievous, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We are, since what, like 1997, I've been in the series about first, no, not really, but it feels like a long time, it's been a long time. Today we arrive, not at the end of the series, but we are, this is definitely the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the end. For four chapters, uh, Apostle Pastor John has been taking us on this journey through a lot of, circling around a lot of different themes, Um, and today we finally arrive at the fifth and final chapter, and John this is, look, John is approaching the airport, okay? He's telling us to put our seats up, the trays up, put on our seatbelts in the upright position. We're, we're getting ready to land here. So, so that's what's happening. And this last chapter uh, that we'll be going over just in the next three weeks is so much fun uh, because he not only talks about, he kind of comes and sums up some of the themes that he's been talking about in some fresh, really interesting ways, but he absolutely unleashes like a barrage of special instructions, final instructions, some kind of mysterious warnings and insights that he wants to get in in the last second right before he signs off and sends this letter off to the churches. And so, that's where we are. We're in chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Uh, the scriptures will be on the screen. Here we go. Verse 1. We're going to go over the first five verses of chapter 5 today. This is going to be good. This might be the best sermon I've ever preached. So uh, I, I, th- I hope that every week, by the way, in the back of my mind, it's rarely true. But here's what he says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. That's an interesting phrase. So he starts off with this theme that he's, he's talked about before, that, you know, what it means to, to be a Christian, what it means to be born of God. It's, it's you know, loving, uh, loving God and believing in Jesus, this idea of faith. And then he adds on this interesting little phrase. He kind of generalizes it and says, everyone who loves the parent loves the child. Everyone who loves the parent loves a child. How many of you have kind of a special place in your heart for the children, particular children, simply because they are the children of some really good friends of yours. Anybody? Yeah, I I have that. Like, there's just some kids. I mean, yes, I love all children. I love all kids. We'll put that out there. But there's some kids that, ah, they just have such a place, right? And, And honestly, it's because of the close relationship like Mel and I have maybe with the parents or something like that. Um, so you love the parents, so of course you love the child. There's, there's a family. I have the honor of being their, their kid's grandfather, uh, not grandfather, uh, godfather. That's the word. Godfather. There's a big difference in that. Yeah. I, I get to be their godfather, and it, you know, it's not like, you know, because uh, my amazing uh, looks or anything like that. It's because I am such close friends with the parent. And so John here is, is again, he's connecting our love for God with the love for God's children. And the child he's, talks, he's talking about here is you. 
You and me. We're the child here. It isn't Jesus, it's you and me that he's referring to right here. He has been saying this in so many different ways throughout this letter. If you love God, you're going to love people. It's, it's just a non-negotiable. If you love God, you're going to love people. Love of others is something Jesus says is just absolutely core to what it means to being a Christ follower. Then he says this, by this we know that we love the children of God, That's a, when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments. So that's interesting. First off, can we just kind of admit for, for a second about how strange this sounds to our 21st century ears. This like love obey language. Love obey language, right? Um, there are very few places in modern American culture where our, in our lives where this kind of language is ever used or used appropriately. Uh, you would not, for example, speak to your friends using love obey language, right? I wouldn't look at Rick and go, Rick, buddy, hey, uh, I command you to bring me a glass of water. Thank you so much. Right? I wouldn't do that. that that'd be a weird, weird friend. Um, you wouldn't even use this language uh, in settings where uh, the other person is like being paid to serve you, you know, like if you're at a restaurant or something like that. You would never say, a waiter, I command you to, you know, bring me a menu. They would probably ask for, you know, someone else to wait on your table, right, at that point, right? right? And you, you wouldn't say, oh, I, I'd like to reward you for being so obedient today. I'm going to give you a tip. That would be strange. There's something about love, obey language that's kind of bizarre to us. And we, some of us, you know, we read scripture, we don't realize how bizarre that can sound. Even when there are power dynamics at play, you know, in our life, like, you know, if you go to work or something like that, a, a boss talking to her employee or something like that, uh, unless you want to be slapped with like a harassment suit, you don't use love, obey language, right? In, it's used in no, and really in no situation today except one, parents and children, a parent and a child. Love and obey is not a compatible or appropriate pair of, of commands applied to any relationship except this one, the relationship a child has with his or her parent, which is what makes these words from John really beautiful. And by the way, John is echoing the words of Jesus, right? Jesus himself said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So Jesus equated these two things. But so, so when we understand the relationship that John is insinuating that we have with God, then, then it, it isn't cringy or bossy or weird. It, it, and we understand too, the, we get a much clearer picture of the relationship that God sees he has with us. So God is not saying to us, hey, since we're buddies, uh, you better love me and obey me, right? That would be weird. And he's not saying, I'm your boss, and so you better love me and do what I say. Instead, what we have is the God of all existence saying, I'm not just some all-powerful deity that you worship without any intimacy at all. And I'm not your, your, your best buddy who's your equal. I'm your dad, I'm your heavenly dad, and, and I love you more than anything in this whole universe. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. And so God is telling us that he, he's, he's like, I'm your dad, and I'm giving you these, this guidance and these guardrails that will ensure your well-being, and it'll make your joy complete so you can love me and obey me as a child would their own parent. Now, 
That's interesting. But what I want to move on and, and spend most of our time on this morning are two big ideas that John says next. First is what he says at the end of verse 3. He says, for the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Can I just tell you how glad I am that John mentions this here? Because obeying God can be a heavy concept, right? Obeying God is a pretty weighty thing. It can be a heavy thing to unload on somebody because you can't fake it, right? You can't, like, you can pretend like you obey people and they'll never know that you really cut corners, but God knows, right? So that can be a weighty thing. For him to say, if you love me, you'll listen to my teachings and do what I say. But then he reminds me, you do this because the teachings, you can do this because the teachings are not burdensome. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Now, first of all, notice, he doesn't say there is no yoke, right? Jesus doesn't come along and say, hey, I've saved you. Go have fun. I'll see you when you're dead, right? No, right? There, there, is, there is a yoke. And what, what Jesus insinuates here is what, it, what we're talking about here is an exchange. There's an exchange. See, we are, we are born with this yoke, this yoke of the world, the yoke of sin. I mean, we all know. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's beautiful. And Jesus later in, in uh, what was it, uh, chapter 23, he, he contrasts this with what, what we get, you get from the Pharisees. He says the religious leaders pile on people. He says they, he's talking about the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. By the way, that word, uh, that phrase hard to bear, it's the exact same word that John uses in his letter that we just read. It's that word John says is burdensome, hard to bear. And lay them, they lay them on the shoulders of other people. So there's this yoke of sin that we're like born, right? We, the world around us, oh, it's so heavy, it's awful. And then religion comes along. There's this yoke of religion. And that, Jesus says, that's just as hard to bear. And one of the reasons is because that doesn't actually remove the yoke of sin. So now you got two yokes on. You got sin and religion. You're just a sinner with religion. Fun, right? Yay. And Jesus says, no, I've got a third way here. Let's take both of those off and take mine upon you. So Jesus and John, they both want us to understand that whatever these teachings are that Jesus has given us, whatever these commands are, they're light, right? They're not heavy. They're not oppressive. They don't bind and imprison us. They actually liberate and levitate. These are light. This is what the writer wants us to hear. And so I just want you to know, if you're here today and you have ever found the teachings of Scripture, of the commands of God, if you ever found those heavy to bear, if they weigh you down, uh, it's probably because we fail to understand them properly. Because they're not meant to be a heavy burden. They're meant to be light. They're, they're not meant to put you in bondage. They're, they're meant to liberate you and set you free. And one of the most important things for John we see throughout his letters is, is to help us understand you don't have to carry around the yoke of religion or the yoke of sin. You don't have to carry either of those around anymore, right? If the yoke that you're wearing is killing you, it, it, it's probably not of God. Well, it's definitely not of God, 
right? Uh, and it's okay to drop that yoke. It's not of God. And so it brings up the question, why is it that the teachings of Christ, uh, the, you know, the teachings of the Bible, the teachings of Christ so often seem grueling to people? It turns out there's a, real, there's a reason why religious communities have often created these um, conditions that make his teachings feel hard and heavy, that make the commandments feel difficult to bear. The reason can be explained by these guys. Watch this. Yeah, so two things we learned. One is that parrot owners are different from the rest of us. Um, no, no judgment. If you if you own a parrot, that's awesome. That's that's just, but, but yeah, you're, you're different. Uh, but yeah, there's something about because parrots are interesting, right? They're fascinating. Some of them are very impressive. The things they say. Uh, but here's the second thing that is important for us to to understand here. As fascinating as impressive as they are, all the studies they've done the studies and they show they actually have no idea what they're saying, right? They don't. They, they actually aren't conveying a single bit of their interior thought life or their feelings in the things that they say, that they, they parrot back, right? There's no meaning attached to their sounds. Uh, they don't actually love you when they say, I love you, right? <laughs> they're not like full of self-pride when they say that they're a pretty boy, they're not like having a good day. Say, I am a pretty boy. They're not saying that, right? They don't actually care if you want a cracker. They just don't. All these things. Why? Because they are mimics. They are mimics. They are mimicking behavior. Now, what does this have to do with our, our love of God and obeying his commands? We have taught parrots to, uh, how to say stuff. We have not taught them why. They're saying it, right? And some of us have been taught to believe that, well, if the love of God means following the commandments, then I, if I follow the commandments, that'll create in me a love of God. But that is actually reverse engineering. Uh, that is becoming a parrot. Uh, so that's following the commandments because you think it's going to evoke something, right? It's going to evoke a tasty treat. And it doesn't. It's not the way the commands work, right? We don't actually get extra treats by following the commandments. And so many of us has been taught in religious settings to hold on to the commandments with these like white knuckles. And what that has done for so many people is they, those commandments become a heavy load to carry. They're a burden to carry because we fail to understand the, the actual order that the relationship unfolds. There's an order to this thing. And it begins with love of God. It begins with love of God. And automatically then, uh, effortlessly and unconsciously, you begin to carry the commands. You begin to follow and become attentive to the commands and the desires of, of Jesus. And you begin to do this because you love that person, because you love God. But love is the starting point. Love is the starting point. So we could put it this way, love makes the commands light. Love makes the commands light. I want to show us an example uh, of this played out in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's a book, in the book of Genesis, there's a story 
I love this story because it's, it's, it's brutal, but it's, it's very romantic at the same time. And I like romantic movies. Mel and I watch little rom-coms all the time. And it's the story of a guy named Jacob. And he has fallen head over heels gaga in love. It's like love at first sight with this girl named Rachel. And it says that Rachel was beautiful. And Jacob, he knows immediately when he meets her that uh, she's the one he wants to spend the rest of his life with. And in fact, you're going to like their interaction. You know in rom-coms, what they call when they first meet, they call it a meet-cute. Anybody ever heard that term? The meet-cute? That's the point in the movie where, you know, usually it's the woman like walking out of the coffee shop and the guy like runs into her on the sidewalk and it spills all over and she's like, hey! And he's like, what? And then they're like, oh! Right? It's the meet-cute. That's the, that's what happens. And in this one, this story has, has a great one. It is literally a tearjerker. So Jacob just to set it up, he set out on this long journey because he is um, away from his homeland looking for a wife because that's what you did back then. So his family said, go off east, way out there and look for a woman um, outside of our village. And so he's wandering and, and looking, traveling. One day he comes across this well that is being tended to by a bunch of shepherds. And he's kind of striking up a conversation with these shepherds. Well, along comes this woman, Rachel, who is leading her father's sheep. And so Rachel is like, she is beautiful and she's hardworking. This is the whole package. I mean, so he's very impressed. And Jacob sees her and he runs over to her to help uncover the well, like to help her with the sheep. And then it says this, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Jacob's either a super emotional guy um, or he has been super ready to find a wife. And, right? Um, uh, Number one, it doesn't say she asks for the kiss, and so that might be a little problematic. But number two, then he just starts bawling. And the good news is for Rachel, this guy who just weeps when he kisses you, that does it for her. She's like, yeah. Um, So here's where the story takes another interesting turn. So Rachel's dad is this guy named Laban. Laban has two daughters. He's got Rachel, and Rachel has an older sister, Leah. And Jacob tells Laban, uh, he goes to Laban and to the dad, and he, he tells him that he really loves Rachel. He wants to marry her. And they come up with an unusual deal. Jacob will stay and work for Laban for seven years with his sheep and his farm and everything. Going to work there for seven years, and then Laban will let him marry Rachel. Now keep in mind, seven years, in those days, seven years of work is no small commitment. The average uh, lifespan for a male in the ancient Near East is 40 years, right? Very few people, the rare person made it to like 60 or 70 back then. So 40 is kind of like all you're sort of like looking forward to. So seven of these years, he's now going to give up uh, so he can marry Rachel. You could just imagine those years going by, the days, the mornings, the weeks, the months, the years going by. It must have felt like an eternity, right? Imagine waking up every morning, toiling under the sun. You're working, tending to Laban's flocks. It's not like your flocks. You're not like making any money out of this. All for the promise of marrying the woman that he loved. Sounds like a very heavy burden, But here's where our theme comes into play. Love has this incredible power. It says in verse 20, Jacob served the seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. He serves for seven years, but it seems like the blink of an eye because of love. Now, 
Side note, this story does not end without some additional uh, drama that threatened the whole thing. If you fast forward to the, 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 final, the final day Jacob had been eagerly waiting for, the day when his seven years of labor were over, he goes to Laban, he's like, I'm ready. And Laban says, yep, okay. And he throws a huge wedding. There's a big wedding. Jacob's thrilled. He finally gets to marry Rachel. After the wedding, there's a big feast. And then it says after that, the happy couple retires to the honeymoon suite where it tells us in verse 23, all the things you would expect to happen, happen. And then in verse 25, when morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Disregarding the fact that Jacob is evidently not a super observant guy. <laughs> Emotional, not observant. That's a little, a little sketchy. There's so many inappropriate jokes, I can't make. Um, this is a pretty underhanded thing for Laban to do, right? He's getting his daughter, his older daughter, Leah, married off because um, that was the custom for the older daughter to get married first and apparently it was getting tough for that so he just you know pulls a switcheroo and, well long story short Jacob is furious as we can imagine but so great is his love for Rachel he agrees to work for Laban another seven years another seven 14 years in total and his love is so profound that even the, the burden of that additional seven years, those 14 years, don't compare to the joy of having Rachel as his wife. Of course, now he's married to two women, uh, which back then wasn't as legally problematic as it would be today. But the point is, their love is a testament. The story is a testament to the, their, the power of love. Love makes even the heaviest burdens light. You can ask anyone who's taken care of an ailing spouse. They can tell you this. Or a parent who sits tirelessly by the bed of a child who's going through an illness or something like that. And they'll tell you, love makes the burden light. I, I read recently of a woman who, she spent the last two years of her spouse's life taking care of him. And she said later, it was the hardest thing I had to do but it was my joy to be with him. And I would have done it as long as God had allowed me to be there. The way she described it, there was a levity to the burden because of love. Love makes the burden light. So if you long, if you're here and you long to keep the commands of God, you, you want to become more attentive to the teachings of God. We'll begin with engaging in a love of God. And how do we love God more? Uh, Brenna taught, uh, touched on this really brilliantly last week, so go back and check it out. But here's the punchline from chapter 4. We are able to love because God first loved us. Because God first loved us. So whatever love you hope to generate for God or for anybody else, it's not possible without first receiving love from God. We have to come to that place where we can accept love from God before we can ever respond with love for God or for anyone else. Now, we could say more on that, but we want to move on. Let's look at um, what John says next, because here is where uh, we see the brilliance of John. He's, he ties everything together. For four chapters, he has talked about love. He's talked about obedience. He's talked about believing in Jesus, holding fast to the faith. And here in these final verses, 
John's getting ready to land the plane. He ties all three together, obedience, love, and faith. And he uses some pretty intense language here. He says, for whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it who conquers the world? Okay, we get it, John. But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John is this like sweet, loving kind of gentle soul, right, up until now. It looks like John has had some coffee in these before he drank, he wrote these last sentences here. The gentle apostle of love, he gets riled up. And this is the only place in all of John's letters where he talks specifically about conquering the world. And he repeats it three times. So I want to talk about this phrase for a second. At first glance, this for, for some of us, this can be kind of like troubling language for some of us. It can make us think, you know, of, of like Christian armies going out into the community or nations and conquering them in the name of Jesus. You know, we could recall that literally happening, in, you know, in history, the crusaders leaving Europe back in the 12th century to march to the Holy Land, do battle against the Muslim armies and drive them out of Jerusalem. When I hear this conquering the world, I think about recent history of, of the goals of, stated by some terrorist groups like ISIS, you know, 10 years ago when they were just, just raking their way through Syria and rampaging their way and in the name of Allah and brutally murdering people, not only Christians, but other Muslims who, you know, weren't their brand of Islam. So I want to say right now that this is not what John is talking about here. The idea of Christian armies or militia groups, or whatever have you, going out in military conquest in the name of Jesus, that's totally foreign to the Spirit of Jesus. Amen? Amen. We know that. You know that. So, if you hear, uh, if you hear someone saying that, or you hear someone talking about that on TV, or multiple, you know, media, or something like that, talking about this, this idea of conquering other people, you just know, because, oh wait, now I go to Generations Church, I know what that is. That's the Spirit of the Antichrist, right? Because you're smart. Um, What's sort of interesting is the RSV, NIV, some of the other translations, ESV, King James, uh, doesn't use the word conquer, it uses the word overcome. And it says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, it gives a little different flavor to it. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. The message translation, which is a fun, I love reading that just in my little personal uh, reading time. It does use the word conquer, but it adds a different twist that I think clarifies it a little more. It says, every God-begotten person conquers the world's ways. The person who wins out over the world's ways is the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. So here's the point. Obviously, we're not talking about a literal conquest of people here. We're talking about a different kind of conquest. It's an inner struggle in our own hearts against the ways of the world. Remember what John has just said in the last couple of verses. He's been talking about obedience and love, obedience and love. And now he says here is how we conquer the world. So conquering and overcoming the world for a Christ follower, it means overcoming the influences of an unbelieving world, the world that we live in, right? Uh, followers of the Prince of Peace, we aren't about conquering people. So we could say it this way. We could say conquering the world, it turns out, is about successfully living God's ways, following God's will and his ways, rather than succumbing to the values of a rebellious world. The Apostle Paul says this many times. He tells us the, the, the real struggle that we wrestle with isn't against flesh and blood. It's against something far more sneaky when I was growing up, uh, there was a word that church folks used a lot. You don't really hear it much today, but it's a great, it's a good word that kind of uh, 
applies here, and it's the word worldliness. Worldliness. It's, it's what John defines back in chapter 2 as lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that worldliness. If you remember way back in week 4 of this series, back in 1974, when we were in week 4, <laughs> there, there's a world that we're supposed to love and a world we're supposed to reject. We talked about that. A world we're supposed to love and a world we reject. The world that is people both the people of God and the, our, even our enemies, that is the world we're supposed to love. The physical world uh, that he, he created, this planet, the animals, all that he told us to take care of in Genesis, that's the world that we love. But the New Testament writers also talk about a world and a love for the world that is totally contrary to the kingdom of God, right? And that world describes the values of a culture that cares nothing for God and his ways, it's the systems that we live in, the systems of cruelty and greed and injustice and racism and violence and power. That world, John gives us some really good news today. He says that world we have already overcome. How can he say that? What is it that brings us victory over that world? Our faith. He says our faith is the victory. Now, I understand this might be, you might be nodding off right now, but really try to, try to tune in for a second because this is good. Sometimes you and I might feel like we're not getting anywhere in our spiritual growth. You ever have those seasons? You might be going through one. You're not getting anywhere in your spiritual growth. Um, you sure don't feel like you're winning the battle against the flesh or whatever you're coming up against in your circumstances. Maybe you're struggling to keep up with your prayer life. We let distractions around us get to us and make us anxious about stuff. Well, here's a newsflash that is surprising to exactly nobody. The, the process of growing and maturing in your faith is not a straight line up, is it? That process of growing and maturing, more often than not, it feels like a very wiggly line, right? It's, it's a journey that sometimes feels like two steps forward, one step back. But John assures us that everyone born of God overcomes the world. And so whatever your, your personal subjective experience may be, you ultimately overcome. He says you overcome. And no, John isn't promising that you're going to have a life filled with just one easy victory after another with no disappointments. But he's also not just saying that, you know, your victory is going to happen just in the sweet by and by after you die. No, the victory that has overcome the world, we have to get this, it isn't described by your circumstances. And it isn't described by the result of even your faith and your prayer. It isn't described, it isn't up to whether today felt like a win or a failure. The victory that has overcome the world is based not on the outcomes of your faith. The victory that has overcome the world, he says, is our faith. The very fact that you walked in faith is the victory. You've already overcome by being a person of faith, by putting your allegiance and your trust in Jesus. So we have to get this. Our faith has already overcome the world. When you make that decision to trust in Jesus, when you make that decision, no matter what it looks like, when you make that commitment to put your allegiance behind Jesus, and that's really uh, one of the best translations of that Greek word for faith, Pistis, which is loyalty or allegiance. 
And when we put that allegiance behind God, when you do that, you are already living a life that is one. You are already living countercultural. You're living against the grain, baby, right? That is your victory. And it doesn't look like, it sure doesn't look like a bunch of angry, militant extremists, you know, trying to grasp for power or march on Jerusalem. It looks like people who act and speak like Jesus, even when that's not going to win us the argument. We still choose to put our faith in Jesus and we choose to walk in the ways of Jesus. That's the win. That's the win. They act and speak like Jesus simply out of love. That's a love that is possible through faith. We put our confidence in Jesus, our allegiance is behind Jesus, our loyalty, our trust is in Jesus. Your faith, which is exhibited through actions of love, your faith is rebellion against a rebellious world. That's your your tweetable moment right there. Your faith is rebellion against a rebellious world. And so here's why this is really encouraging to us. John says, your faith has already overcome the world by its very existence. This reminds me, by the way, that the outcome, even the outcome of my prayer, is up to God. That's really his business. That's, some, that's, that's, a, that's a burden we can release. Oh, wait, things didn't work out the way I was praying for. I must have done something wrong. No, 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 no. That's all up to God. Once you pray, once you use that faith, you, you are walking in victory. You have used your faith. You have prayed the prayer, right? You're standing on that. That's, that's your job. Your job is not to, to do what God is supposed to do. That's his job, right? So you've already won the victory by walking in faith, by living a life of faith and trust in Jesus. We leave the outcomes for Jesus. But here's the good news. What faith will do every time is it produces fruit in our lives. Faith produces fruit. The love that faith in Jesus brings, it may not appear instantly like magic, like a magic trick, but we can be confident that our faith, it grows love. Just, just as it grows obedience and, and a prayer life and wisdom and patience, and it, it, our faith will grow those things. And remember, you're not earning your way into God's family through performance. That's, that's a whole different yoke. That's that religious yoke, okay? So if, you, if you're starting to feel like that, uh-oh, I have accidentally put on somebody else's yoke that God says I don't have to wear. No, overcoming is assured because you are in God's family. You're not overcoming so that you can earn your way into God's family. It's already assured because you're in God's family. We don't belong to the world anymore. We just don't. And though we may walk like infants, as the Apostle Paul puts it, our belonging to the family of God is already assured. Your belonging is already assured. Grace through faith has already determined our ultimate destiny. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are not seated with the world anymore. Our faith has overcome the world. Your faith has overcome the ways of the world. Your faith, being a person of faith, you've overcome. And that faith produces love that'll win the world. Your love that that produces wins the world over. Amen. Anybody with me? All right. So let me finish up here. I want to finish by asking, this is kind of the question I think John is, is really asking us in this passage, and that is this, who or what are you choosing to let shape your life? I mean, think about that. Who or what is shaping your life? And you're letting, 
shape your life. The worldly person allows their life to be shaped by circumstances and culture. They let their attitudes and their actions be shaped by a world that either assumes that God is irrelevant or he's just not existent, right? The worldly person shapes their life around the desire to possess things or control others or avoid discomfort. Some of us are comforting ourselves to death. That's a whole other sermon. Every one of us, if we're being honest, can recognize this temptation in ourselves. Being a Christian does not mean the temptation goes away. Every one of us, this temptation is always there. I understand it. The world never stops its relentless, nagging call for us to follow its ways. And there's always something fearful, threatening inside us that, that wants to give into the lure of that call. Paul calls it the flesh, the sarks. But John tells us that we've been offered everything that we need to overcome that voice. The victory that conquers the call of the world, he says, is our faith in Jesus. Our faith in Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, rather than shaping our lives around the world's vision of pleasure or success or control or comfort or all those things, we're called to let the Word, that's the true Word, the one who is Jesus, live in us to listen to His teaching, to meditate on it, on that teaching daily. And we have the incredible privilege of asking the Holy Spirit, we can ask Him to help to put it into practice every, every day of our life. He can help us with that. So as a church community, it's not just an individual thing, but as a community, we're called to do this together. We're called to do it together, to talk honestly about our struggles with each other. You're not meant to do it alone. We always say this. We, we keep harping on this because so many people, they hear it over and over and over. They just don't believe it yet. But if you're doing this thing alone, if you're carrying these burdens alone, you're doing it the hard way. I'm just telling you, you're doing it the hard way. We're not meant to do it alone. We're meant, not meant to walk alone. We are meant to, to talk honestly about our struggles together, to, to walk out our faith together, to help each other understand it and, and to practice it. So that as a community, we can become more like Jesus and win the world through love. That's what we want to do. We want to be more like Jesus so we can win the world through love. So back to my question, who or what are you choosing to shape your life? Is it the voice of the world around you that calls you to fit in with its priorities and power dynamics and, and ever shifting values, the values of the week? Have you ever noticed the world calls whatever it calls right or wrong, like shifts next week? It'll be different than this week. Uh, it, that's, that is a burden. That is a terrible burden to have to follow. Or is it the voice of Christ, the one who has come to live among us, to make God's will known to us, the Christ who loves you more than anything in this world can possibly love you. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, that, that gift of, of Zoe life May it pour into us. Lord, may we become just receivers of, of this vast love that never hesitates, Lord, a love that's not based on anything that we've done. And God, for those precious people who are here this morning that are feeling rejected or unloved, for those people here this morning feeling lonely, for people who feel like they have love to give and nowhere to give it, for those people who are uh, feeling broken, May they 
turn to receive, Lord, this boundless source of all love that is given to us in every moment of our existence. May we breathe in today this exquisite gift of love. Your love, your light, your, your lightness of being that you offer us. May that light and love, Lord, begin to heal the deepest parts of us that feel broken and rejected and abused and injured. And may we then, Lord God, go out into the world and offer that love in ways that reflect you well and honor the divine source of that love, Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Strengthen it. Even those of us who stand before you with little faith to offer, Father God, fill us with the faith that conquers the world. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you need prayer, we have prayer partners coming up right now. And whatever it is that you have need of, come and let them pray for you. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever struggle you're having, don't do it alone. Don't journey through that alone. Let them bear that with you and bring it to the Lord in faith with you. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, to take that next step and just say, I want to follow this Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't know everything for sure, but I, I just want to take that step and follow Jesus and surrender to him. Come and do that today. They would love to pray with you uh, today. Would you stand to your feet and let me bless you? All my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you May he make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May he fill you with his love and his light and his faith today in this, in this world that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.